My great friend Tom Phillipson, who is former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors. He's now teaching school. He's a professor of public policy at the University of Chicago. Uh, Tomas, welcome. Good to be with you again, Larry. All right, buddy. Assess this GDP report. All right, tell me what you're thinking here. How bad is the inflation? Uh, is this stagflation? And is this going to lead to recession, let's say, next year? Well, I think, I mean, there was a couple of things. Obviously, the inventory and the trade deficit kind of dragged it down. But I also think that's kind of indicative of potentially the, the policies that are in place. You're not building up inventory because you're not super excited about what's going to happen in the future. And also, Biden policies are many times just boosting up demand, domestic demand, and clamping down on domestic supply, which is, you know, it's not the, the trade deficit is not solely due to that, but certainly partly due to that, <laughs> that we, you know, we want to buy more than we produce because Biden's policies are kind of like that. They're going after supply and they're boosting demand with all these transfers. So I think, you know, you know can, some of that... I- some of that was can an I, hangover from from Q4, but still, I think it's indicative. I, can I? That's a very interesting point, and uh, I think there was so much overstimulus, Thomas. Uh, you know, going back to the 1.9 trillion dollar Biden bill a year ago last March, and you know, maybe the 900 billion dollar bill in late December that. Uh, None of us really liked. You didn't like it. I didn't like it. Mnuchin didn't like it. None of us liked that bill, but it wound up going through. But the the point here is an interesting point. One reason for the giant trade deficit is we overstimulated demand. I mean, in in some sense, you know what we did? We overstimulated demand to buy Chinese goods, which probably was (laughs) not the intention. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the COVID recession, it was a brief recession, but it was the first recession on record where we had disposable income, meaning your private income plus the transfer from the government, go up in a recession. That never happened before. Now it's tricking down, obviously, once we turn off the sort of the, the transfer machine <laughs> coming out of COVID. But it's, it was a unique recession in that the average person got richer in a recession uh, which do- hasn't happened before. And that's the, the demand stimulus that sort of made it go overboard. We wrote about this in the summer of 2020. It's actually started with CARES uh, and, and went on from there. But it was a very unique recession in that way. But if you look at, you know, it's, a, it's again kind of an indicative situation with, with Biden where we have enormous price increases and lackluster growth, even negative growth. Because when you clamp down on supply and raise demand, both of them presumably increase prices, especially if you have 40 percent growth in the monetary base, sort of boosting the demand. But when you increase demand and then crank down on supply, those are offsetting forces on output. So you're going to have lackluster growth. One is basically stimulating quantity and one is destimulating quantity if you go after supply. So it's, it's kind of I read this GDP report in that regard that it it, it was a sort of an extreme version with negative. But still, it's going to be that kind of pattern in the future because we still have, you know, an inflationary Fed with real rates being negative. Uh, and, and I think that pattern is going to continue. Like you said, it's accelerated the last four quarters. 
You know, I mentioned at the top of the show uh, in my riffs, this business about negative real interest rates. I mean, there's a lot of people on Wall Street, Thomas, who are saying, well, inflation has peaked and it's going to come down. But if you've got an 8% inflation rate and the Fed funds target rate is whatever it is, one quarter of 1%, I mean, you have to have a positive real rate to stop inflation. I mean, you've got to shrink the monetary base. You're right. You've got to slow down the money supply. But you got to have, they're going to have to lift rates significantly more, aren't they? Yeah, no, it's cheap money for sure when real rates are negative, right? So if you have cheap or low borrowing costs, you know, that's a recipe for for a stimulant, not a, a break. And, and on, the sl- on the balance sheet coming off, you know, the pace they're going, we got $95 billion a month. It's going to take them four years to come down to pre-pandemic levels. It's going to take them eight years to come down pre, pre-financial crisis level. And during those four and eight years, there's bound to be another quote-unquote crisis that's going to make it inflate again. They're not going to get rid of this balance sheet at the rate they're going. So the likelihood is that the stagflation may lead to recession, not this year so much, but next year or the year after? Yeah, I think, I mean, the policies they're putting in place is it's pretty much exactly the opposite of what we were doing. And Let I me, think you've kind of seen, seen the Tomas, results of that. Stay with me. Stay with me through the break. i got to take a quick commercial break. Now I want to talk to you on the other side of the break. More about inflation and also forgiving student loans. Folks, I'm Larry Kudlow. Tomas Phillips will be right back with us. Please hang out. Much more to do. From Wall Street to the White House, this is The Larry Kudlow Show. Welcome back, folks. I'm Larry Kudlow. Great to be with you today. We're talking to Tomas Phillipson, former chairman of the White House Council of Economic Advisors during the Trump administration. He is now professor of public policy at the University of Chicago. Um, Tomas, uh, just to um, to put a cap on this economic story, uh I noticed in the income and spending report yesterday, real disposable income. So for our listeners, that's income, wages and salaries income, after inflation, after tax. Tomas, the point is uh, real disposable income keeps falling. I mean, wages are rising, but inflation is rising even more. And when you tack on tax hikes or tax increases, it seems like this is at some point going to bury the consumer, but I just want to get your take on it. It can't be a promising number. Yeah, no, it went up during uh, Trump, obviously, pre-COVID, but it has been falling. Uh, and, and people keep touting the wage gains, even though they're smaller than the inflation rate. So that's, you know, that's the crux of the problem. People can buy less stuff. Sooner or later, that's going to show up in less real GDP because real GDP is stuff, put it that way. So uh, I think, you know, that's where we're headed. I think this whole debacle is sort of an indication of, and I wrote a Wall Street Journal piece on this, on the Fed basically um, being unable, or policymakers, both Congress and the Fed, are unable to time the cycle. This is kind of a Groundhog Day for bad Keynesian policy in some sense, what we're experiencing right now. Because, you know, these are generalists in Congress and, and bureaucrats at the Fed. They have zero, not, they have very poor incentive to forecast the economy compared to private sector, you know, Wall Street firms, et cetera, who actually lose money if they're wrong. 
But Wall Street firms are horrible at forecasting <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, so, basically, <laughs> so basically, we're the Keynesian view. The Keynesian view is that we should rely on the forecasting of these guys in government, even though the private guys can't get it right. And and that's just been again and again a failure of timing the cycle. And this is just the latest example. And you have. You have these two-faced economists, I call them, who base, like Larry Summers, who say, we believe in Keynesian policy because we believe officials can time policy well. And then they go out and complain on the timing of official policy at the same time, which is what Larry, Larry's done, that they basically uh, are, are stimulating too long. So I think, I, I mean, I think it's kind of a, an indication of, I, I mean, the piece I wrote was, you know, Keynesians run in circles on inflation. It's just an illogical kind of worldview where you believe government officials through Congress, general people who without economic expertise in Congress can time the cycle. Yeah, or the Fed with, with the Fed with price controls can time their price controls in credit markets to fix these problems with the cycle. I just, I think it's, you know, it's sort of, sort of the norm in Washington, but I think it's a very ill, ill, ill-guided it's norm. It's crazy stuff, not to speak of modern monetary theory. Anyway, Thomas, um, Joe Biden's looking at forgiving student loans, all right? Forgiving student loans. What do you make of that? Well, my view on this is that, you know, Democrats want public financing of political campaigns. And this is a version of it where you basically send people to colleges for free on tax dollars, and then they get trained to be Democrats, essentially. <laughs> so, <laughs> even at the University of Chicago? Yeah, even at the University of Chicago. You would not believe the stuff that we're dealing with here. Uh, <laughs> You know, Obama people run the Milton Friedman Center, by the way, so it's kind of indicative of how University of Chicago is going. <laughs> but anyway, back to student loans. Good idea, bad idea, forgive them all. Yeah, no, I mean, you and I dealt with this when we were in, when, when in the White House. We have an enormous, this program was, the problem we got with the student loans started with the public sector coming in, taking over the uh, over the uh, loan business. And when they do that, they don't have underwriting. They don't have any other practices to figure out whether you can pay back loans or not. And now we're about one and a half trillion in the hold. And then we go to taxpayers and say, yeah, we're running a bad government program lending to students, but can you bail us out? And I think, you know, it, it's a really bad situation, I think, in terms of the, the both the incentive it, it generates because you know students presumably think that they have very low interest rates on these loans if they're for free but if you really wanted to subsidize higher education this is not the way to do it the way to do it is up front as opposed to at the back end well why should uh, 70 percent of the country finance 30 percent of these you know those who have student loans and I, especially you know some of the biggest ticket items here are graduate students why does the country have to finance graduate students? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, Milton Friedman famously claimed this is one of the most regressive programs we have in the government because it's basically a bunch of rich people getting a, a cheaper education relative to the taxpayer who is funding it. 
And, and I think that's right. I mean, it's a very, very regressive program. And even the Brookings Institution comes out and says that this is going to be mostly benefiting the high-income individuals. And I think people are very upset with that uh, scenario where, you know, very rich kids get breaks on Ivy League schools. What's wrong with going back to private lenders making these loans? I mean, the Obama administration stopped, you know, banks from making loans, and now it's all the government making loans. So to your point about, you know, creditworthiness and taking a look at their ability to pay, that's all out the window. Why not go back to private lending? Yeah, no, I think, I mean, if you want to subsidize higher education, that's one thing. But, you know, you can do that in various ways. This is a very indirect way of doing it. But, yes, when... You have private lenders, they care whether you're going to be able to pay back the loan or not. And you're going to have strict underwriting measures, which the government basically abandoned. And surprise, surprise, they're in the red, about one and a half trillion from not having underwriting of their borrowers. And I think that's kind of econ 101, how credit markets would work. But I think that's not viewed as a drawback of the program from the Democrats. That's a benefit of the program for them because they want to just subsidize higher education, given that that's how you get trained to vote for the party. All right. Tomas Phillipson, University of Chicago, former CEA chair during the Trump years. Thanks ever so much, Tomas. We will talk soon. 